welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on in our museum. Today, you're listening to, well, me. My name is Sarah Nixon, public programmer here at the museum. I would like to begin by saying that we are recording today's podcast at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center and that we honor and acknowledge that this land is part of the traditional territory of the Neutrals, Haudenosaunee, and Anishinaabe peoples and their allies, and is adjacent to the Six Nations of the Grand River. This is the third part in a series of podcast episodes detailing the fallen workers of the Welland Canal. Over the course of this mini-series, I have been speaking with Des Corin a longtime volunteer with the St. Catharines Museum and an avid fallen workers researcher. We've been talking about various topics and issues regarding the fallen workers of the Welland Canal. In this episode, we explore the particular experience of immigrants working on the canal and how the challenges they faced led to many deaths. This episode was produced using primary source material as well as the Fallen Workers series published by the St. Catharines Standard. Many of the men who worked on the construction of the Fourth Welland Canal were immigrants from non-English speaking countries. In line with the sentiments of the early 20th century and the idea of Canada and the US as beacons of industry, opportunity and prosperity, Many immigrants left their homes and families to find new beginnings here, eventually finding themselves in St. Catharines. The construction of the Fourth Welland Canal, beginning in 1913, was an opportunity for many new immigrants to find employment and to earn enough money to support their families. The fallen workers of the Welland Canal came from 16 different countries with many immigrating from Italy, Austria, Hungary, Poland, Russia, and the Ukraine. The immigrant experience on the Welland Canal proved extremely challenging. Language barriers posed serious risks to worker safety, as laborers were not given adequate instruction or training in their work. Work days were long and intensely physical and arduous for all. However, due to their socioeconomic status in their new country, immigrants were often further exploited in order to carry out the more dangerous work. Their compensation for this work was often not what was promised. Today we share the devastating stories of two fallen workers, both under the age of 20 and both of immigrant families. We consider the tragic deaths of Estafi Ilasevich and Antonio Collini in an attempt to understand how the challenges they faced led to their fates and to explore what can be learned from their stories. We will begin with Estafi Ilasevich who died on January 22, 1915. He was 19 years old. Estafi immigrated to Canada from Russia and was one of the earliest to find works on the canal. He died by electrocution after he failed to understand a warning about a live wire that was said to him in English. 
What follows is a St. Catherine Standard article detailing the witness testimonies that were gathered for the coroner's inquest into Astafi's death. The St. Catherine Standard, January 23, 1915. Accidental death. Coroner W.T. Greenwood's jury Friday night found that Astafi Elisevich, the young Russian teamster who was electrocuted at Port Weller two weeks ago, came to his death accidentally, but they censured George Vale. Vale is the man who saw the wire down and the soon-to-be victim regarding it curiously. Vale yelled to Astafi, Don't touch it, it will bite, and then went about his business. Either the Russian didn't believe that the wire would bite, or didn't understand what was said to him. For a few moments later, he was found dead with the line grasped in his hand. The jury considered that it was Vale's duty, knowing the danger, to go to the pole and stand guard over the wire until someone else came to take charge or the power was turned off. A couple of witnesses were heard Friday night. Charles McHenry, an electrician employed by the government, brought samples of the wire used and stated that it was capable of carrying twice the load of the electricity that was used by the company. Reginald Quinn, electrician in the employ of the contractor, said he had noticed the wire before the accident and it seemed all right. Gordon McFarlane, electrician, built the line and he assured the coroner and jury that it was properly built and the wire was all right. He couldn't explain why the wire should break, but said it might have been done by blasting. A. Zebrun, brother-in-law of the victim, swore that the latter knew only a few words of English. I would now like to invite Des Corin onto the podcast to discuss the stories we are hearing today. After listening to this accident report, it seems obvious to us that we should not touch electrical equipment without the proper safety equipment. Des, what are some of the issues surrounding this particular accident? Well, let's take a couple of points, first of all, about Estefi. He was 18 years old, born in Russia, and from the inquest, he didn't understand English. The fact that he was warned not to touch the electrical wire lying on the ground raises the question, why was a live wire carrying 2,200 volts on the ground in the first place? Three electricians on site testified the line was capable of double that load. It was all right, and the installer claimed that the line was properly built. Live wire lying on the ground was not mentioned in the inquest as a danger, but when Estefe grabbed the line, he was electrocuted and became the 10th fallen worker, and that took place January 12, 1915. Was Estafi the first to be electrocuted? Uh, yes, but later on September 10th, 1915, an Italian emigrant, Antonio Montemuro, was electrocuted when he came in contact with a 550-volt line, which was 1,500 feet long, running from a transformer at the stone crusher plant to a switch box and then to a drilling machine. Now, the stone crusher plant was approximately where the Seaway building is today, the drilling operation near Lock 4, where Antonio was killed and listed as a drill runner. As the drilling advanced, the line had to be moved, 
explaining why it was four feet of four above the ground for easy movement. There was much confusion in the testimony at the inquest about the quality of the electrical wires, and the jury recommended that in future the wires be so constructed as to safeguard the workmen. It went on to recommend the Crown Attorney be involved in proper inspections of all electrical wiring, and by the evidence given, live wires were allowed to lie on the ground. From those two stories, what strikes me most is how much of an impact language barriers had on their deaths. I mean, Staffy knew very little English, meaning he likely did not understand the warnings that were said to him, and that was noted in the Standard article. That language barrier ultimately cost Estafi his life. And that's to no fault of his own. He was an immigrant, he needed work, and he found work on the Welland Canal, which happened to be a dangerous construction site. I imagine there's so many stories like this out there. The issue around language barriers and work sites really got me thinking about what we do today. Today we have internationally recognized symbols to identify hazards. Anyone who sees that skull and crossbones, for example, they know that maybe we shouldn't touch that. And I think the implementation of those international symbols, those are reactions to workplace accidents like what happened on the Welland Canal. Instead of being proactive, a lot of what we see in terms of implementing safety procedures and policies happen after the fact, as a reaction to certain accidents that could have been avoided. Des, in terms of the accident that took place, ultimately cost Estafi his life. We know that there was a report written about it. Were any recommendations of that report acted on? Well, well yes. Uh, electricity was a, a new source of power in the early 1900s. We know that from the standard stories in June of 1914, Mayor James Thomas Petrie was thrilled to witness the first hydroelectric powered light in the city as it made safe for the citizens to travel at night. The Provincial Power Commission Act of 1912-1914 was to ensure electrical equipment was safe and in 1915, the Hydroelectric Power Commission, that's HEPC, was born. In 1918, the HEPC established an approval laboratory to test electrical equipment and set stringent guidelines. Products were declared HEPC approved and later hydro approved. By 1924, HEPC was empowered to prohibit sale of electrical equipment, it seemed unsafe, and their standards were later accepted throughout Canada. In 1940, HEPC established the Canadian Standards Association Testing Laboratory, and CSA still exists today. I find it interesting that all of these safety procedures were reactive to the accidents that took place. It wasn't like Electricity was invented, it was introduced in the workplace, and all of these safety procedures were enacted. They all kind of happened afterwards when these deaths and accidents were occurring, so they were all reactive. There was actually none of these. That, that, there was no proactivity. Mm-hmm. All this came after the fact. And if you look at the time frame, it wasn't until like the 1940s that, that real standards were set. So it was, it was a, uh, 
action in, in motion moving ahead, never ahead of it, always after it. The youngest to die during the Welland Ship Canal construction was a 15-year-old boy named Antonio Collini. It was his first job, earning 15 cents an hour as a water boy. He died on July 26, 1927, after tripping and fatally falling off a lock wall. He plunged 24 meters. Listen to this reading of the newspaper article detailing the tragic accident. The St. Catherine Standard July 26, 1927. Boy falls 80 feet to death at lock number 2. Antonio Collini, 15-year-old son of Ben Collini, Port Weller, was instantly killed about 10 o'clock this morning when he fell off the wall of lock 2 of the Welland Ship Canal at Port Weller. The deceased was employed as a water boy on Section 2 and was walking along the lock wall in pursuit of his calling when he fell into the lock, landing on the bottom, some 80 feet below. Just how he came to fall into the lock is unknown. He was dead when picked up by workmen, and the body was removed to the funeral parlors of winter and winter, pending funeral arrangements. Des, what can you tell us of Antonio's life? Well, like Estefi and Antonio Montemuro, Antonio Collini was born in a foreign country. His family brought him here from Italy when he was just two years old. His job as a water boy paid him 15 cents an hour, so for an eight-hour day he earned $1.20. I'm pretty sure that a 15-year-old boy today would earn 10 to 20 times that on the lock two wall, falling the 24 meters into the lock. His death was instantaneous. Could this fall have been avoided? Absolutely. A debris-free construction site, a safety rail, both cases which are mandatory today would have avoided the tragedy. An accident like what happened to Antonio would warrant criminal charges today. I can only imagine that this would have been an incredibly devastating time for the Kalini family. How could they have coped? Well, the Kalini family story tells of his funeral, his burial, in a new suit which was bought from his earnings. His younger brother, Pio Sabatino, born in 1926, now he was just like two years old when Antonio died, later adopted Antonio's name. He became Tony Collini and was well known in the streets of St. Catharines as he was a door-to-door vegetable merchant, a profession he carried on into the 1950s. He died in 2011 but his firstborn son and his grandson were both named Tony, maintaining that family name even to today. Des, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to speak about these young men. What strikes me most about the stories we've heard today is the idea of legacy. The many immigrants who came to St. Catharines during the construction of the Fourth Welland Canal stayed. They settled here, raised their families, and became a part of the fabric of our community. Many descendants of the fallen workers are still in St. Catharines today, 
Names like Kalini, for example, are familiar to us. Their memory did not just fade away. Their families enabled their legacies to continue. Do you have any last information you'd like to share about the fallen workers we've talked about today? Well, just to summarize, we've talked about three young men, all foreign-born, age ranging from 15 to 22. Two of them likely didn't understand English and all died under conditions which we would consider criminal today. The Kalini name is well known in St. Catharines as his headstone in Victoria Lawn has been recently refurbished. Estafi's headstone is just a few yards from Antonio's and Antonio Montemuro's headstone is prominently viewed in Lakeview Cemetery in Thorold. That's it for this episode of Museum Chat Live. This podcast was produced by Sarah Nixon with special thanks to Des Korn for sharing his research and knowledge. Museum Chat Alive is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and the Welland Canal Centre and the City of St. Catharines. Mm-hmm.